welcome back to another episode of Laptop Coaches. This month's guest is Dr. Colm Cronin. Colm is the program lead for MSc Sport Coaching at Liverpool John Moores University. At John Moores University, Colm shares his research which predominantly explores how coaches can develop caring relationships with athletes. He is the co-author of the book, Care in Sport Coaching. Colm has also worked with a number of sporting organisations such as the FA and UK Coaching. On this podcast, Colm discusses his research in care in sport. We unearth the importance of care, how we install a caring environment, Colm's aim to provide research on the influence that caring cultures have on the clubs and of course Colm's main takeaways for coaches. This podcast is a must listen for all coaches out there. Discover the key ingredient that is absolutely necessary in all leadership endeavours. Enjoy. Colm, can you tell me about the importance of care and also how it's integral to, say, the teaching or coaching process? Yeah, so it's a great question, Ethan. It's, um, it's one that I think uh, can be answered maybe in three ways. So, you know, coaches, um, just like a, a lot of other people, uh, such as teachers, for instance, or people working in healthcare or whatever, they have a legal duty of care. So one of the first things that a coach has to do is kind of ensure that they are safeguarding and they're not harming. Now that legal duty can be different depending on where you are. So if we look at England, for instance, where I'm currently based, coaches there, they have a legal duty which comes under what's called the tort of negligence. So if you step up and you're saying, look, I'm the coach of this team, I've got some knowledge, I can help this team. Well, along with that kind of opportunity and that position comes responsibility to make sure that you're safeguarding people. Um, And that's a legal duty. So it comes under tort of negligence. And what's interesting is a second principle on this is called the neighbor principle, is that that duty to not harm, that duty to safeguard, it applies to anybody who could be reasonably in your environment, so your neighbors. So for the mum and dad grassroots coach, that might be the players, but it might also be the assistant coach and it might also be the, the parents. So you've got a duty to make sure everybody around your environment is safe and you're not harming them. And that's a legal duty. Um, and you have that whether you're being paid or not, because assuming the position of the coach, you're assuming and you're, you're saying, look, I've got knowledge here. Uh, I've got authority here. Well, with that comes responsibility and a legal duty to safeguard and not harm people. Um, so that's the first reason why I think we've got to think about care. And, you know, coaches can, can enact that duty, you know, by doing their risk assessment, um, by keeping, you know, making sure first aid equipment and first aid qualifications and knowledge are in place, making sure, you know, the grassroots coach, and making sure they know where the first aid box is or where the defib is and where the key is for the defib at the clubhouse. So they can take these reasonable steps and not only can they, they should do legally. So that's the first reason why coaches have got to think about care is that they've actually got a legal duty to do it. 
Now, I also think they've got a moral duty to do that. You know, and again here, uh, you know, my initial thoughts goes to young uh, athletes, young players. You know, you're taking on that responsibility. You're an elder person. You're a role model. You're you're stepping up in that position. Well, you've got a moral duty there to care for the people that you're coaching. So it's the right thing to do to look out for them, to make sure they're not burning out, to make sure they're not being bullied, to make sure it's a safe environment. So there's a moral duty there. Um, and I said, you know, that's probably easier to see again when we think of coaching in, in, in youth sport. But if we think of adults, players as well, actually, you know, we got a moral duty there as well. You know, they're getting hammered on social media. You know, they've got a lot of travel. They might be in part-time positions on limited income. Well, actually, we've got a moral duty to look after those people as well and care for those people. Um, and then finally, the third one is actually, I think there's a performance element to this. Um, and I, I think it's something we'll come on to, Ethan. But actually, caring is a way of helping somebody to develop as well. And I think this is really important because often people think about care as being nice. And, uh, well, actually, caring is, is about helping people meet their needs. So, again, if you've got a player, I don't know, who wants to develop a career in the game, well, they might need extra practice on their weaker foot or on their crossing or tactical or some extra analysis. They might need support with nutrition. They might need support with, with, with stretching and recovery. Well, that's a form of care, meeting those needs. So care isn't just about being nice and arm around the shoulder and telling everybody it's okay. It's not about clearing the path and making everything easy. Care is about looking at the individual needs and working with them to address those needs. And that for me is key in terms of performance. Um, that will help that player to develop their weaker foot. That will help that player to you know, develop their tactical understanding and go on and develop their career. So I think care, looking at what they need, working with them, and addressing that need is key from a performance point of view, a moral point of view, but also a legal point of view. Um, so for me, there's three elements. I don't know, Ethan, does that help answer your question? That's, that's perfect. Just a quick question on that. Do you think that this, in terms of those three different areas, do you think care, looking at it to, uh, through those three different areas, do you think it's something that eases off in adulthood or maybe more, say, the professional side of sport? And you think it should ease off? Do you think it does? And do you think it should ease off? Yeah, really good question. Um, it's a complicated answer. I hope you bear with me here now. Okay. Um, so I, one of the things that we need to establish is that care is a relationship. And, and this is where people often go wrong. And um, so, you know, the, there's two people involved in this relationship. There's the, the coach, for instance, and there's the athlete. And a caring relationship works both ways. The coach can give to that relationship by observing the athlete, by talking to them, organizing conversations in coffee shops or individual action plans, or just having a five minute chat at the end of the session to see what those athletes needs are. And the coach can contribute by then coming up with a plan and helping those athletes needs. The athlete can also contribute to that relationship. So they can contribute by turning up to the meeting in the coffee shop, staying five minutes later, accepting advice, uh, you know, uh, contributing to the conversation, talking about how they feel. So the athlete can also contribute to the relationship. And the reason why I brought this up is because as athletes develop as individuals, 
I think that relationship will change because the athlete can take care of more stuff themselves. They can take on more responsibility in that uh, uh, relationship. I'm reminded of a sprint coach we did some research on and really, you know, experienced sprint coach, you know, been to the Olympics, 100 meter sprint uh, athletes. And he often talked about how, how over the course of the relationship, the coach would, he would start off more of a teacher and time become more of a mentor. Uh, and in the end, it, you know, it was the athlete coming to him and saying, actually, look, I'm struggling with this. This is what I need. Have you any ideas? So as that caring relationship developed over time, the athletes took more control for their own performance. And so that's one reason why it would change over time. Now, I said it was complicated. I, I just want to check you with me so far because now I'm going to throw a spanner in the work. So you with me so that part? I'm with you, yeah. Okay, so here's my spanner. I also think how we look at care changes over time. You know, if we think broadly across society now, I'm not just talking sport, I'm talking education, for example, in healthcare. We often look at care of the young people. So we see nursery teachers as nice and caring and crash, you know, you know, if they fall over or oh, they get a little hug and a cuddle. We see secondary teachers, uh, primary school teachers are quite nice. They sing songs and stuff like that. But secondary school teachers are a bit more strict and they're a little bit less caring. And you get to university and we have this perception of university lecturers as standoffish, uh, as uh, objective, as not caring. So across society, I think, I think we, we do kind of appreciate care at the younger age groups but as we progress up we kind of see less value in it um, and we almost reach a care ceiling where you know somebody's seen as an adult therefore they can take care of themselves and we don't need care and uh, care at that point but i think that's a real misconception because again if you think of our elite sport athletes you know if you think of footballers you know, they're, they're experiencing racial abuse, they're experiencing abuse in stadiums, verbal abuse, you know, they've got high training loads, they've got a lot of demands on them. Actually, they still need care, you know, in terms of that holistic lifestyle, but they also need, still need to care, you know, you don't stop learning at 19 or 20 when you're given a contract, we, you know, we still want to develop our players and they might need care towards the end of their career to prepare, to prepare for retirement and to prepare for a career after, you know, I, again, I'm thinking of women's sport here, which uh, women's sport often have dual careers. So they might have an athlete and, and a job. They might be an athlete and a student. How do we care and help them? So actually, when you look at adult sport, I think there is a need for care. Um, but we tend to see that manager or that performance director is objective and cold and calculating Actually, I think we need to change that. We need to not only see a coach is caring or they'll be good with the kids because they're caring. We actually need coaches who care with the adults as well. You know, and it's not hard to think of athletes who needed care and maybe didn't receive it, you know, uh, in adults. And we need to re reappraise how we see that manager role as not something as cold and detached, but something as caring willing to listen, willing to look at the players and athletes' needs and work with them. That can be challenging. That can be giving those athletes challenges, giving those athletes, you know, demands, you know, if that's what they need. It doesn't always have to be nice and making things easy, but it's about looking at their needs. And I think adult 
athletes need somebody to look at their needs and work with them just as much as young athletes. How would you, based on your research and what you know, if you're just to break it down and simplify it, how would you say show care for an adult athlete? Say in a football situation at a professional club. Yeah, great question, Ethan. I'll, I'll give you a bit of theory and I'll put an example for each part if that's okay, yeah? Because, you know, my research on care is informed by Nell Nodding's research. She's looked at care for kind of, you know, best part of 50 years in a variety of settings, healthcare, education, social work. And we've looked at those lessons and looked at coaches in athletics, like I mentioned, basketball. We've looked at care in football, netball. So, you know, we're trying to base these on, on research. So uh, the research says that care can kind of, these caring relationships can be broken down into three key concepts. The first one really is, is the, the care of the coach needs to be engrossed and pay attention to the athlete. Yeah. And that engrossment is the first, the first concept. And, and a simple way that coaches can do this is by observing and by listening. And again, if I was to, you know, if I was to do this as a, as, as, a, a, um, as a coach or a recommendation, it would be to ask coaches to reflect and think about, right, you've seen everybody, but who have you observed? Because there's a difference between glancing at somebody and paying attention to somebody. So, you know, can you get there to see who comes into the training ground? If I give you an example for a youth to begin with, you know, which child is rushing in late? Which child is maybe, you know, which child is early or is maybe coming in on their own? Which child is not dropped off with anybody? So you can start observing how they arrive at the training ground. And good coaches in the adult domain will do this as well. You know, are you shaking your players' hands? Are you looking in their eyes? Well, you're probably not shaking the players' hands at the moment, but are you looking in their eyes to see who's tired, who's had a good night's sleep? And a lot of football clubs, adults, they'll have the sports science collect this data They'll do, you know, sleep profiles and they'll do, you know, mood scores. But are you using it? Are you observing it? Are you seeing who's coming in? So the first one is to observe. And then the second way that you can be engrossed and you can pay attention is to listen. So have you scheduled a chat with everybody? You know, have you got a list on your wall of all your players? And, you know, just do this for a week, you know, write down who you've spoken to and who you've missed out because you might be missing them out two weeks in a row and you might be missing them out three weeks in a row. And you might be having conversations with three players, you know, every week, but two players, you might only really be barely connecting with them. And of course, that's a lot of labor to, you know, keep that chart and organize those individual coffee shop conversations or those chats at the training ground or to sit next to them on the bus so that, you, you know, these can be informal, but are you listening to them? So you might want to delegate some of this out to your assistant coaches. You know, if you've got a squad of, I don't know, 26, 30 players, it's tough for you to observe everybody. Do your coaches have a list of players that they've got to observe in that session? You know, if you've got a couple of assistants there, can you divide the squad up and say, right, I want you to watch them closely this week and come back and tell me what you think they might need. I want you to have a conversation with them and see what they tell you they might need. You know, are you collecting that need information? Because if you're not collecting that need information, how are we going to meet those needs? So the first step is engrossment, really, is attention through listening and attention, and attention through observing. It takes a lot of labor, but, you know, put in a simple system like a tally chart of 
individual action plans, individual conversations, observations in and around the training ground and use that time. The second one is, is, is term motivational displacement, even it's a horrible term and probably for the coaches out there but it's basically about doing something to serve those needs and it's called motivational displacement because your motivation isn't about what you want to do as a coach necessarily it's about what they need so that are you acting based on their needs and this is the this is really acting upon the information that you got from engrossment so, you know, if you see that somebody's struggling on their dominant foot, as we say, well, are you changing your session plan to incorporate a bit of that? Are you putting on 15 minutes extra? Are you asking them to come in 15 minutes early? Now, this is why it's a relationship. They've got to come in 15 minutes early. They've got to, so it's, it, it's not about doing stuff for them. It's about meeting their needs with them. So it's motivational displacement. They've got to, you know, you've got to put and meet those needs, but they've also got to contribute. Um, so these are things you can do then, you know, are you putting on a Zoom session on sports psych? Are you helping them with their concentration? Or, you know, are you, you know, maybe you're looking at your wider squad and there's people in there who haven't had a game for a week or two and you're thinking, right, well, are you putting on a friendly to meet those needs? Are you putting on behind closed door training to meet those needs? Because it's one thing understanding their needs, but it's not caring if you don't act upon it. Yeah. Uh, I'll give you an example, Ethan. I, I hope you won't mind, but no, go ahead. This is, you know, this is the same as my wife's birthday. Like, you know, she'll 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 drop hints about what she wants. You know, Ethan. You know, she learned. I need the hints, so I see the hints if I'm lucky and if I'm. I'm <laughs> but you know what? If I don't act on it and I don't actually respond, and I'm in the hot water, I'm in trouble. I'm not caring unless to act upon it it's one time it's one thing seeing those needs it's another thing to actually do something about it okay so that's the second part is you've actually got to have the motivation to meet those needs and not just understand them so we got engrossment understand the needs second thing is meet those needs and on the third thing is reciprocity again a terrible term it means two-way okay so reciprocal two-way and again, this is this idea that actually, you know what, the athlete has to contribute as well. So, you know, the athlete, you know, turn up early, you know, stretch early, stay behind late, you know, open up, contribute to, con to the conversation about diet. You know, maybe they have to prep meals. You know, you can meet them. Maybe, you know, maybe there's an athlete who needs some help with their diet. You know, you bring in a nutritionist. That's you acting upon those needs. They get advice. Well, yeah, but the athlete has to contribute as well. They've got to take that advice and engage in it. So it's a two-way relationship, you know, it, 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 and that's where they start owning those needs and develop over time. And, and sometimes those needs can be challenging and saying, look, I actually think you need some you know, the data tells us you need some strength work or you feel you need some strength work. We all agree you need some strength work. Now you've got to come in the gym. I'm going to make the gym open. I'm going to bring in an s &C. I'm going to provide 15 minutes extra. That's me providing, but it's you now need to come in. So it can be providing them a challenge can be a form of care. It's not about taking challenges out of the way. It's about understanding what challenges they need, what support they need, and providing that and then reciprocally they've got to contribute to that relationship as well because it is a caring relationship that we're trying to develop here two-way you know i don't know is that confusing is that helpful or no, that is that you've hit the nail on the head there i've got one small question based on what you just said and it's just at the end or maybe two 
Number one is, uh, based on what you know and maybe some theories that you might have, how do we get buy-in from the athletes? I know a lot of coaches would struggle. There might be some kids who aren't as forthcoming, maybe for different issues. How do we get buy-in from the athletes? It, it, it's a great question, Ethan, you know, and, and there's psychological theories out there. You know, a simple one that comes to mind is self-determination theory where, you know, you know there's kind of three key pillars here that, you know, uh, athletes will be motivated if they have a choice. Um, so if we involve them in the design of sessions, if we involve them um, in choosing tactics or choosing technical practices, um, so if they have a choice, if they're having feelings of success, um, so we want to be giving them challenges which are achievable but demanding, you know, so in that Goldilocks zone, not too easy, not too difficult, just right in the middle. OK, so we want to have some success, but we don't want too much failure. And, and relatedness, can we develop relationships in a community and we're in this together? So that's a big psychological theory that's out there that, you know, self-determination theory. And, you know, some of the listeners might want to look that up and use those and think about how do I how do I involve my athletes in sessions? How do I, you know, am I pitching them at the right level so that they're having success? If they see themselves having success, they'll commit more to it. Um, and if they see themselves learning, they'll commit more to it. So it's not 100% success, but it's not 100% failure. It's that Goldilocks zone. And then are we in a community where people are connecting with me and we're going through this together? So there's a social element. And if they feel part of that community, uh, you know, whether that's a Christmas party or an end of season do, or, you know, maybe it's staying behind to watch a match on telly, you know, um, so they feel a sense of community, then they'll feel part of it. So that's one. But to bring it back to here, I think, I think, I think we can rework the question. Because I think the question kind of says, how do we get athletes to buy into what the coaches want? And that's not what CARE is about. CARE is about getting coaches to meet what athletes need. So if you sit down with your athlete and you ask them what they need, and if you provide ideas, and if together you can work up an identification that this is what I need to enjoy my football. This is what I need to progress in my football. This is what I need to progress in my career, whether that's grassroots, through to elite. But together you identify the need and together you can identify ways of moving forward. Well, an athlete doesn't have to buy into what you want. The athlete is, is together you are buying into what they need. You know, so, it, you know, there's no athlete that comes in and says, I, you know, I, want, I, I don't want to get better. I don't want to have fun. You know, I don't want to enjoy my football. But these are their needs. Let's sit down with them. And instead of getting them to buy into what we want, Let's look at how we can serve and meet their needs. Does that kind of help? It's a bit of a mind switch. No, that's perfect. I really like uh, touching on self-determination theory. And I like the reiteration of that care is to meet what the athletes need rather than what the coaches want. And just one tiny question on it, on what you said before. You did say, you said it twice. It's a lot of labor. And you were talking about delegation and things like that. But say in this situation where coaches are not on their own, but say maybe there's a coach and an assistant coach at an under-17s, under-18s team, that could also be the case for, say, teams and academies. 
in the Premier League where there's only two or three working on it, maybe four, including a goalkeeper coach, but they usually look after the whole academy. You said it's a lot of labour, but we've taken the position as a coach. Do we owe it to them to owe them that care, that kind of workload that you mentioned? We kind of owe it to them because we've assumed that position. Yeah, so we've got a legal duty to make sure that they're safe. Yeah. So that's first and foremost. And, you know, we don't always get that right in sport. And unfortunately, we've got too many instances of abuse, you know. So, a lot, you know, too many organisations, too many clubs aren't doing their legal duty well enough. So we've got to do that. But I think beyond not harming, I think we have a moral and I think there is a performance imperative to care. Because if we start meeting their needs... One is the right thing to do because they come to us for that. But two, it will help them develop. We'll help them to develop as a footballer if we start meeting their tactical needs, technical needs, physical needs, psychological needs. We can help them prepare for sessions. So it's meeting their needs, benefits us from performance. It's the moral thing to do. And we have a legal duty to make sure that they're safe as well. So a safety need there. Um, but it's tough. It's not easy. And coaching's tough. And, you know, again, you know, the grassroots coach who's going out on a Tuesday night voluntarily, uh, you know, hats off to them. I've got a lot of time for them. You know, the youth academy coach, as you said, you know, they, they might be trying to develop people as people, but they might have performance pressures. The, you know, the high performance performance coach who's out there and, you know, the results and they've got media and they've got different departments to manage. And, you know, they haven't got a, low, a, a big budget or they haven't got time or if they do, they've got extra pressures. So it's not an easy gig. So I'm not saying this is easy. In fact, to care for that many people and meet those needs is really tough. It's really laborious. So for me, then we really need to start thinking about caring cultures within a club. Uh, or within a team so if we talk about your under 17s team for instance you know is the coach the only person who can meet the needs of those athletes well probably not they're not the only person who can observe the assistant coaches can like we already spoke but what about the athletes themselves can they mentor each other can they keep an eye out for each other can they support each other with 15 minutes extra training 15 minutes before what about the parents in the grassroots club? What about, you know, other staff? Are we drawing on the sports psych? Are we drawing on the, the physio people? I mean, performance analysts, wow. Who's better at observing players than performance analysts? Are we using those observations? And are we using them to inform how we develop people, how we develop players? So are we, are we developing a caring culture where everybody involved in the team or the club or the organization says, look, this is about understanding each other. It's about working on each other so that we develop. And it's about actually doing that. And everybody's got a role to play because it's a reciprocal relationship. It's not just one way. So I think instead of giving all this labor on the coach, we really need to look around the club and start thinking, who can we draw on uh, to support athletes? And crucially, who can we draw on to support coaches? You know, if it's a two-way relationship, if, you know, if, if we have a caring culture where people in the club are looking out for each other, or, or keeping an eye, or, or organizing conversations, or asking people how they're doing, and are then acting and supporting people, well, then somebody should be supporting the coach, because coaches, you know, they suffer burnout. You know, they suffer fatigue. They 
depression. You know, we've done research on coaches who suffered depression and, you know, had substance abuse issues, you know. So who's looking out for those people? Is it the assistant coach? Is it the chairperson? Is it the sports psych? Um, is it the athlete welfare officer? You know, you might have a welfare officer in the club and they can't care for everybody, but can they make sure everybody's caring for each other? Um, so that's maybe something we need to start moving towards where everybody's got an eye out on each other. Everybody's within a group where everybody's got somebody to have a relationship with a copy shop conversation with, provide some support, provide some challenge so that we make sure that everybody's flourishing. Um, because if our SNC burns out, if our sports site burns out, if our coaches burn out, those athletes aren't going to flourish. Yeah. So we got to look at that, you know, and a good performance director, a good technical director was probably looking at that staff and saying, what does this staff need? You know, have they got on their wall? Have I spoken to Jody S&C coach this week? Have I spoken to sports psych this week? Have I observed them? Do they need support? Do they need challenge? You know, these, these might be high performing staff. They might need new challenges all the time. So a performance director can provide them with that. That might be their need. So again, it's not just about being nice and making things easy. It can be providing challenges. But is somebody looking out for you to provide those challenges? Have you got somebody to talk to about those challenges to develop your own needs? That's probably a little bit idealistic. It's where I think research is going, where we're moving from caring for individual athletes to seeing relationships to now seeing cultures. Uh, and I think that's where, you know, some of the forefront work is really going to happen. It's going to move to caring as a caring club and a caring as a culture. I really, really like the way you incorporated everything in there. I want to ask more questions on that in terms of your own research, maybe later on and maybe your own research and caring cultures. But just for coaches, Colin, on a step by step basis, how do they put in place a caring environment? And then just talk to me briefly about the benefits after. Yeah, it, it, it's a really good question, um, and it's one we've been working on. Uh, I've been working with a colleague, uh, Colm Hickey, who's based out in Lausanne, actually, is Colm, in Switzerland. Um, and we've actually developed a bit of a model, really, around uh, care, developing the care and culture within an organisation. Uh, and one of the key parts of the model is having buy-in from key stakeholders, so we have this moral uh, imperative, this idea that caring will help people flourish. Uh, and we, have, we understand that care is relational. It's two people contributing. But those relationships happen within a wider culture. So if you're a caring coach, but everybody else around you in that club, the supporters, the, the parents, whoever it is, the chairperson, your, you know, your line manager, effectively, the board, if they're not bought into this, then they're probably not going to value what you're doing. So the key part to developing a caring culture is to really begin with the key stakeholders. And if you think about high performance football, for example, elite level football, managers are often in place for around 18 months, probably not long enough to develop a caring culture. If you really want to have a caring culture, you probably need a technical director to buy into it or you probably need a chairperson to buy into it or a board to buy into it. So, because they're the people who actually might be at the club longer. Now, not always the case. There's exceptions. Successful managers might be there for seven or eight years. Um, but often, uh, you know, the manager, the, the coaching staff can be changed quite regularly. And 
and actually the support staff might often out, outlast the, the coaching staff. So the sports scientists might, you know, might last longer at a club, for instance. So again, if you've got a chairperson, if you've got a board, if you've got sports science, if you've got wider stakeholders that say, look, what we're doing at this club is we're looking at individuals' needs we're meeting those needs to help them develop. We're looking out for each other because it's reciprocal. We're all doing this together. Well, now you've got everybody buying in, but you got to start with the people who are going to be powerful and who are going to likely last, and that's the stakeholders. The next steps then really are to start allocating that care and labour. You know, who are we going to use to do that engrossment to understand players' needs? Uh, who are you going to use to um, observe, to listen, to allocate time. And coaches are good at this. We're good at planning sessions. Now we just need to plan our off-the-field activity as well. You know, so on the field, who, who are we allocating to observe? So if I'm delivering a session and I'm out there doing a, a game or a small-sided game, one of my coaches could be observing how some players are getting on. One of my coaches could be observing. They don't have to be contributing in terms of delivery, but we've planned that caring labor within the session. You're observing these 10, you're observing these 10. So we've, we, we've divided it out. And then after the session, I want you to grab some point this week, a 10-minute conversation with those athletes and start building up a relationship. So you start allocating that labor amongst you know, maybe you pull in the captain and you say, look, we've got a couple of young players playing up this week. I want you to observe them. I want you to have a 10 minute chat with them. So you allocate that caring labor to the captain or a senior pro or a senior, you know, a second year scholar versus a first year scholar. So you can allocate that caring labor out and you can allocate uh, uh, and you can start doing some of that engrossment, some of that motivational displacement. Okay. Crucially, you gather up that information. As I said, you know, you got to act on it. You got to act on it. What are you doing for those needs then? And if people see you working with them, if people see you acting on their needs, on, on their helping them to flourish, that's where you get the buy-in. But they're buying into something that they need, that they contributed to. And um, so that's really key then. And the other thing that's key though, is that they have to contribute to that. Okay. And again, this is where the stakeholders come in, uh, you know, so if the chairperson says, well, this is what we're about, if the senior pros say this is what we're about, if the parents and the grassroots club all come in, then anybody joining the club, anybody joining the organization will buy into the culture that's developing there. Okay. So you implement these plans, you based on these needs, you have wider stakeholders built into it, but you got to build in a learning mechanism. How do we know that actually we are meeting those needs? You know, so if you did a week or two of engrossment, you bought some uh, stakeholders into it, and now you start tailoring your sessions to the needs, you start putting stuff in place. Well, great. Are we done? No, we're not. We got to follow up four, five, six weeks later and sit back down and say, right, have we met those needs? What's the next need? Do we need more challenge? Have we supported that person? Has it worked? So you really got to you know, look at um, a learning mechanism. Uh, so it becomes almost a reflective cycle of looking at players' needs, putting actions in place to support them, and then reflecting on how well those actions have gone. You got to build in stakeholders along the way, as I said, 
And to build in stakeholders, you might want to work a bit savvy. So everybody likes some early wins on the board. You know, if you think of a rugby example, get a couple of points on the board early. Okay, uh, it helps settle everybody down. So if you're trying to build a caring culture and you're selling this to a chairperson up above, or you're selling this to supporters, or you're selling this to fans, well, you probably want to do some evaluation after three or four weeks, and you want to show some early wins. You want to show Joey who's now gotten better because we listened to him. We put something in place and Joey's now better at that and he's now developed. So you want to get some case studies of success. You want to get some wins on the board and that can be internal or it can be external. So you want to send up to the chairman, look, this is what we did with Joey. who was a left back and was struggling with this. Now look at how he played at the weekend. This is really working. We need support for this caring culture. Yes. Trust caring process so you want to show these wins these case studies these success stories so you probably want to pick and choose which needs you want to address first get some buy-in pick some of the easier ones get the players buying in and then over time players will start trusting actually if i sit down with ethan if i sit down with my coach if i express to them what i'm struggling with they actually put something in place if i commit to it as well we do develop so you want to build it up over time with some early success and monitoring that through that learning mechanism uh, of progress. Does that help, Ethan? I don't that know. sounds that sounds perfect. That's really good, and I really like reiterating the uh, what you're saying with the early success or the wins, showcasing them, and it kind of provides validation for that culture, for a caring culture. And again, then people will buy into it more, you know, and that's part exactly because they see it. They see it working. It almost reminds me of a time when. Liverpool played their first game under Jurgen Klopp um, against Spurs. It's nothing to do with care now, but you kind of associated Jurgen Klopp with this running style and this Gigan pressing, counter pressing. But Liverpool ran more than in any other match for like the last three years. And it kind of everyone was like focusing. There was nil all, and they could have lost the game easily, but everyone was like, whoa, this stat is so good. You know what I mean? And they ran so much. and and it almost highlighting that stat, and it was all over Liverpool social media, and it was all over normal social media as a result. And everyone kind of there was immediate buy-in from everyone. Liverpool finished eighth that season, but still there was immediate buy-in from everyone. And you get a virtuous cycle where they see it working, therefore they try harder, which then makes it work. Exactly, yeah. But there's, there was buy-in from everyone. There's buy-in from the outside. There was obviously buy-in from the inside when you look at his success. And it's cool to see a similar kind of format. They're using care and culture. It's kind of like it's something for coaches to go off. And again, I go back to care isn't just about being nice. It's about meeting individual needs. Yeah. Now, we all know this, you know, the, the needs of a toddler are to have, you know, a nappy change in a bottle. Yeah. Needs of a pro footballer might be to win, you know, so or it might be to be more competitive. So actually helping a team to be able to run more, helping a team to be able to press that could have been meeting their needs. That's, you know, that could have been caring for what those players need. We need to be competitive. We have it inside us. This, we only have one career. These are the best years of my career. I need to win trophies. Great. Well, this is how we can help you do it. Let's buy into it together. You know, so that's what I mean by care. It's often seen as soft and nice and making things easy. It's not. It's about meeting the needs and the needs of yeah. Well, players at a certain age will be to compete and to win and to develop and to, to get better at physically, technically, tactically. So, you know, you so I see 
And I don't know, Jorgen, so I, I don't like commenting from the outside, but it could have been that, you know? And again, you see, you know, you see the hug after, don't you? The Jorgen hug and you, you see the chats after and, you know, the listening. And there's lots of managers emphasizing communication and listening. And what they're doing is they're listening to players, understanding them together, they're formulating plans to help those players develop, help that team develop. So the needs are aligned. The managers want to develop and win and compete. So do the players. Can we get them aligned? It doesn't have to be about an athlete buying into what a coach wants. It's about a coach meeting the needs of the players and developing together as a relationship. Um, so, yeah, you know, you can see the perception of that manager changing. It's not always about being cold and calculated. We need to reevaluate and reevaluate what it means to be a manager, you know? And yeah. Coach. Colm, in relation to your own research, and I had a different question, but I want to, I want to change it slightly to caring cultures. Do you have any research done on caring cultures or are you starting any research? And if so, can you share with us any key findings or any, highlight reels or anything like that yeah so we've done some research on uh, a few years ago in football actually it was um it was from the perspective of strength and conditioning coach yeah um who was trying to care for uh, an injured premier league footballer and um you know what was really interesting was that the ability of the strength and conditioning coach uh, uh, slash sports science kind of filling that role to be able to support that athlete back to play it, it was quite interesting you know they did a lot of the good relational work so you know they would drive with the player to the rehab you know they would be on the pool side helping that player recover from a, a you know a, a bad lower limb injury yeah uh, you know, they became quite close. They're listening to music in the car. They're having lunch together after the rehab and they're away from the main group. So there was a lot of relational work there. But what was interesting was the, the, the wider factor around that, that, you know, the team was losing. They were in danger of relegation. So the managers and the coaches wanted that player back as soon as possible. They were a key player to get back. Uh, sometimes the some of the staff didn't value the strength and conditioning work as much as they valued the on-field stuff. So sometimes that player would do extra training on field, you know, which would mean to be too tired for some of the SNC work, for instance. And so you know, uh, and they 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 were doing that because, as I said, the club was in danger of relegation and relegation means job losses for a club like this. And I, I'm, when I say job losses, I don't just mean the coaching staff. I mean, you know, down to everybody working at the club and the community wanted to stay up. So the coaches weren't doing this, you know, out of spite or Machiavelli. And they were trying to do the best thing, which is get the best player on the pitch, get them training, get them out to keep the club up and everybody would benefit. But the communication between these and the wider imperative to win uh, and the hierarchy within a club between, let's say, the, the sports scientists and some of the other coaches, they all influenced how well that care was provided. And that really prompted us to start looking and say, actually, to do this well, it's not just about an individual relationship. Those individual relationships are within wider clubs and wider cultures. And that's what prompted us to look at the caring culture um, model, really. And um, in terms of the model that I described then of, you know, 
developing a caring vision, buying in stakeholders, implementing engrossment, serving those needs, but also reevaluating and monitoring and getting some early success. In terms of that model, that's a proposed model that's coming out in an athlete welfare book in the next month or two, actually. So that's pretty new. That's pretty at the forefront um, of research. Um, it's based on the Nodding's work uh, over 50 years. It's based on my own research, as I said, in football, athletics, basketball, netball. Uh, but it's also based on organizational change, which is where the other column, column Hickey, is contributed from. So, you know, organizational change research or, you know, done in businesses and done in sports and how do we change organizations? And you can see that by recognizing we need to bring in the wider stakeholders. We need to have success stories. So there is some uh, research behind that model, but the next step is for us to use that model yeah clubs and with organizations to test and that will look very different in a grassroots club to a premier league club so that will be the next step of our research really over the next few years is to develop caring cultures um, with clubs and to see how well does that uh, work and what are the influences and tweak that model and develop that model so it's an ongoing process it'll be really interesting to see when that research comes out and it kind of brings me on to the next question. Column, a lot of teams are employing player care managers. That's the exact title. In your opinion, and based on your research, based on what you know, is this necessary? Is it, is it absolutely necessary? Or is it a role that should be taken up by the, maybe the coach and his coaching staff and the sports psych, like you mentioned? Or is there a need for a player care manager? So, yeah. It's a really good question, and it does show where that we're going in the right direction. You know, 20 years ago, if we were talking about this, people were seeing, oh, sport is about being tough. It's about being aggressive. Care doesn't have a play. Now we're beginning to understand that people can flourish if we're understanding their needs, if we're supporting those needs. Some of those needs might need challenging, so care is not just about being nice, and a player care manager. Sure, can help with that. So I, I, I see this as progress, but I see it as an early development in the role. You know, clubs are using this role sometimes to care for athletes out on loan or athletes going through transitions. That might be, you know, a U team player moving up to a first team. You know, I think um, there's some research out of Australia you know, which around retirement in AFL players and a colleague of mine, Debs Agnew, has done and suggesting that actually, you know what, there's a real need to care for athletes as they step down from the elite level. Uh, they might not quite go to retirement. They might go to semi-pro. They might go to part-time positions and, and, and they're not well prepared for retirement. They've been in the system since they were six and seven years of age. And now they're going to have to come out of this system and how well has the system prepared them for retirement. We see the same thing in Olympic sports, you know, people coming back from Tokyo, end of a career, they've been in a system, you know, for four years, potentially 12 or 16 years, depending on the sport. Well, what's happening now, what's happening in terms of a decompression, you know, when you come back from that high and you experience that low. So there are moments in an athlete's career where, we need support in sports psych research, athlete welfare officers can help with that. So I think this is going in the right direction. My concerns about it are around the amount of labor. So if we're in a, 
a rugby club or a, a soccer club or, or, or whatever, and we employ, right, we now have an, an athlete welfare officer or a player care manager. My concern is that care then gets delegated to that person. Yeah. Uh, everybody else thinks, now my role is tech-tack or my role is S&C. I mean, yeah? Well, actually, no, your role is the athlete. It's about developing the athlete. You might use tech-tack to do it, but it's about developing the athlete as a person and as a performer. You might use S&C to do it, but trying to develop them as a performer. If we have the player care manager, we might outsource it to that one person. And how on earth can that one person be engrossed in everybody in the club? How can that one person meet everybody's needs? Well, they can't because some of those needs are tic-tac. Some of those needs are SNC. Some of those needs are psych. Okay, so, so that one person can't meet everybody's needs, can't be engrossed in everybody's needs. And what is the relationship like between those, those individuals as well? So, you know, if I come along to the athlete welfare officer who's snowed under trying to observe everybody, trying to meet everybody's needs, I open up to them and I don't see anything happen, then I'm not going back to them because that, you know, I don't, we haven't built a relationship. I don't have any trust. So for me, I look at that player welfare uh, role and that athlete care manager role, and I think actually your role might be to make the culture more caring rather than take on the care labor yourself. Your role might be to work with the performance analyst and say, guys, you've got great data here. How are we using it to care for people? How are we using it to meet their needs? Are you sharing this in the right way so that everybody understands their needs? That role might be to work with the sports psych and say, actually, look, we're not just trying to develop psychological skills. We've got a holistic element here. How do we do that? Or that role might be to work with support, you know, chair people or supporters or media so that we get a more caring culture around the club and supportive culture uh, and uh, including challenges, you know, working with parents as well, for instance. So I, I, I kind of see that role as, uh, a good step in the right direction, but I think it's early days and more research in how that role is done really well is probably an area to work on. And if people are out there and want to get involved, they, you know, just reach out because this is where um, our research is going. So don't hesitate to, you know, reach out to us and get in touch. That's really, really good. And I really like that they're almost in charge of the culture rather than just in care entirely. And that was my worry as well that I was thinking beforehand that maybe coaches will think oh, okay well now all of a sudden say a player gets released i don't have to reach out now because the player care officer will do that or in similar situations like that so that's really good to hear uh my thoughts almost reconfirmed yeah i mean that i mean that's a really good instance and I, i'd almost want the player care manager there checking that somebody has reached out and it was the right person whether that was the assistant coach who meant person for the last two years or whether it was the sports psych or whether it was the physio you know you know the player care manager could look at delegating that and look at that support uh, rather than doing it all themselves they might not have that relationship with the player you know yeah. um, and again you know we have a legal we have a moral but i think there's a performance element to reach out and make sure that person is ready because that person will then go on into the community and say go to that club they were brilliant with me at re retirement Great. You know, I'm trying to sign a young player. I want my ex-pro going to that club and parents saying, go to that club. They're a really caring club. They'll look after you. 
So there's a performance imperative here, as well as a moral and a legal, you know, uh, you know, again, we think about soccer and we think of soccer in Ireland, for instance, is competitive, which club is going to thrive, which club is going to get the best players, probably the ones that are going to care for you. That's where the parent wants to send the, the player, you know. Um, so, yeah, can we develop that? And that's maybe what the player care manager could be looking at rather than trying to take on the whole labour themselves. Colm, I only have two more questions for you. I won't keep you too much longer. Can you tell me about your work with the FA, with the Football Association of England? Okay, so this is a change of um, a change of direction, really. Yeah. For the last few years, we've done some work with the English Football Association. We have um, a couple of great PhD students, uh, Noel Dempsey and Reese Chapman, um, who've really looked at coach education. Uh, so it is a bit of a shift in focus a little bit here. Um, so Noel, Noel and Reese have really evaluated coach education that the FA have done. Um, they've done a number of studies, three of which have been published. We've got some more coming out over the next few years. Uh, and, you know, they've, they, it's been really insightful, you know. Um, so we started off, Reese's first paper looked at how coach education has changed over 50 years. And that's been really powerful. Um, because, you know, you could go on your coach education course and you can say, well, this is good and this is bad. But what Reese did was, you know, he stepped back from that. He looked at the documentation over 50 years from coaching books way back right to the modern day. But he also spoke to, I think, about 20, might have been 18 um, people who, who have been involved in coach education. And what a, what a privilege that was. You know, Reese was able to sit down and listen to people who you know, informed and developed coach education, uh, you know, over that time, real, you know, treasure trove of nuggets and insights. And, and what we realized is that, you know what, on any one course, you can say this is good or this is bad. But when you zoom out, you can see that actually coach education has developed over time. Might not have developed as quickly as some people want, but, you know, we've moved from a situation where early coach education was, come on the course, do as you were told, you know, pull your socks up. Uh, this is how you pass the ball. And now show me you can do that. And now you're a coach, you know. So we've gone from a very controlling, didactive training, mimic your tutor scenario to now we've got scenarios where tutors are coming out and working with coaches in their grassroots contexts. They're seeing what the coach is doing well, seeing if they're meeting the needs of their players, seeing what the club is like, what the facilities are like, and working with coaches in those contexts to develop. So we've really shifted from a didactic controlling approach to much more of a co-construction approach. But of course, at any one time, you might not see that, but by zooming out and by seeing these developments over time, uh, recently seeing the direction of travel that coach education becomes more personalized so if you go on a coaching course what does Ethan need to develop not just what do we want to tell or maybe a bit of both what do we think is important but also what does Ethan need so that's you know Reese's first study Noel's study is taking a different approach he's kind of looked at the the policies, the more modern day stuff at the moment and he's looked at how coach education is developed and again that's been fascinating as a researcher because, you know, coaching research will often end a paper which we found this, therefore coach education needs to do this. And what, what 
Nola's found is that actually, you know what, there's a lot of people have an input into coach education. So often the policy that's developed, you know, that's often influenced by government, it's often influenced by wider education, it's often influenced by research, it's often influenced by the professional game. And as that policy gets cascaded down to greater and lesser extents, it can get changed and adapted and the, the course that's produced isn't necessarily always exactly what is designed. And that, that's really interesting. Sometimes that can be a good thing because the course that produced meets the needs of those coaches. Uh, but sometimes it can go off on a bit of a tangent. So Noel has really shown how coach education can be difficult and that really we need to support coach educators so that they're well-informed in terms of tech tack, which they normally are, but also do they know sports psych? Do they know enough strength and conditioning? Do they have access to resources on the social influences on, on sport and playing so that the coaches are, uh, coach educators are well positioned to deliver courses and they're well positioned to support those coaches in their needs, not just from a tech tech point of view, but from all disciplines. So, you know, I think Reese's research has kind of shown how it's developed over time. Whereas Noel's research has shown how actually policies to practice can be quite difficult. Therefore, we need a lot of education and support around that so that we get good courses on the ground. Um, yeah, there's more to it. And the two guys that I mentioned are probably are the experts on it. Um, but it's been a great collaboration with the FA, with the University at Liverpool, John Moores. And again, that's the type of work we're trying to do. We're trying to work with partners and, and, and understand stuff. So again, if people are out there, you know, and they're interested in coach education or research or collaborating, collaborating like that, just reach out. That's no problem at all. We may have to get them to on the podcast at some stage if, if they're more than willing. But You'll have to allocate more time, you know. <laughs> you, you might have be, a three, four hour special. Yeah, special on coach education. And, and they'd be well placed to do it. As I said, they've got three papers out and they've got several more coming. Just one small question. You don't have to go too much into a column because I want to get also your main takeaways for coaches from this podcast. Just one small question. You can spend only say 20 to 30 seconds on it. Should research be the base for coach education? Yeah, so it's a good question. And the obvious answer for me as a researcher is yes. But I, I, again, we could spend an hour on this, Ethan. Yes. So but I'll do it really quickly. I, I think we need to be research informed because coaching is, um, you know, it's a social process. So it's happening with people. And it's a contextual process. So it's happening in specific environments and cultures. Um, and that means that, you know, what works in my environment might not necessarily work in your environment. If I'm coaching the under eight, you, you know, the under eight girls team on a Thursday night an hour a week and you're coaching the, you know, the walk in football uh, over 50s and a friend of ours is coaching the Premier League. They're very different environments with very different people so we need to be we need to be doing research on those environments we need to read that research and we need to use that research to inform us but we need to, we can't just transplant research from a paper and say automatically what i'm going to do we need to think critically about the research and think how would this work in my environment with my people how can we make it work so i would say research informed is where we need to go and you know historically research hasn't been great at doing that 
Um, you know, we publish with using big words and we publish in papers that are often behind paywalls. Um, so it's not easy to get a hold of research, but I would say over the last five years, that has very much changed. You know, there's lots of podcasts with academics, the work that you're doing here to translate complicated research papers into small podcasts, into practical examples. You know, that's fabulous translational work that takes research from a university and makes it accessible and contextualize the people in their club. So I think we need to do more of that. We need to do that through books, through blogs, through podcasts, through services that you're providing, uh, Ethan, so that people can get the research that they need when they need it, but that they are also encouraged to think critically about it because you can't just take something that's happening in a lab and automatically expect it to transfer to your environment or take something that's happened at the Premier League and put it into the under eights. It's, it's not, we need to be critical about what research we're reading. Is it appropriate? Would it work? How would it look? What do I want to take away? And people like you translating that research and asking those questions are invaluable, really. Colin, what are your main takeaways from this podcast? If you had to break it down into solid points to give the coaches to take away, almost like a cheat sheet so they can just go to the end of the podcast and go, okay, what did he say? So I, I think, yeah, I think the first thing is, look, you've got a legal duty to make sure people are safe. So first and foremost, you know, have you got your first aid qualifications, you know, your DBS, have you got a safe environment, you know, is every, you know, are you tracking, um, you know, um, where the emergency first aid is, injuries, have you got your safety in place? That's the first and foremost minimum standard. But I don't think anybody in sport and the football coaches listening to this are interested in minimum standards. I think they're interested in maximum standards. So let's go beyond okay. people safe and go, right, do I know my athletes' needs? If not, I need to spend a week or two observing them. I need to spend some time listening to them. And I mean genuinely listening. Not listening, just waiting for your chance to have your say, but listening and thinking, what does this, what's this person trying to tell me? So genuine listening and a genuine observation. And then, am I meeting those needs? Am I going to act on those needs? And who do I need to support around us? And crucially, am I doing this with them? So again, you know, this doesn't mean that it needs to be easy. You know, those needs might be an extra training session. It might be some extra sprint work. It might be some extra tech tack work. So it can be challenging. Meeting people's needs can be challenging. I'll give you one last example before we go on that but it's done with the athlete. It's based on data in terms of understanding their needs and it's done within a wider culture where we're all working together, okay? Uh, and it's done in a supportive way. So they would be my take-home messages. One, make sure you're meeting your legal duties, but two, aspire to get to know your athletes, your needs, aspire to developing sessions and putting stuff in place to help those and achieve those needs but do it with their consent, with their involvement, with their support, so you're all working together. Can I give you my last example on this? Absolutely. So my last example on this is my dentist. It's a bit of an out there example, so just bear with me here. But my dentist is brutal. They take pieces of metal and they ram them in my mouth and they hurt. But you know what? They never do it without doing a diagnosis first. So they check that this is what I need. 
they always get my consent and they always tell me what we're doing and why we're doing it. And if I don't want to do it, I can put my hand up and say, I'm not comfortable. I don't want to do that. You know, now there's consequences to that. OK, but I have the right to refuse. And if during the process I'm, I'm uncomfortable, I can't talk because my mouth's full of metal, but I put my hand up. You know what? They check in with me. Did that work? They follow up with me a couple of weeks later. How is it going? Have our so so you know care isn't just about being nice. It's about meeting people's needs, but it's done with their consent. It's done as a partnership, and it's based on data and actual needs. Uh, okay, so that's what we would encourage people to do with consent through dialogue, based on data, collaboratively working together. Ethan, I don't know if that helps. It's a really that's perfect. I'm. I want to. Uh, I want to go and take a trip to my your dentist now because I haven't been to the dentist in seven years. So, well. <laughs> Colin, thank you so much for that. I really appreciate it. Take it no. easy, mate. Thank you for having me.